It was an audacious cyber operation that snared some of the country's brightest minds in its web. Emails sent to thousands of college professors in the United States, purportedly from overseas academics, lavishly praised their research, complete with links to articles of mutual interest. Only the links were fake, embedded with malware that exposed their email accounts to what federal prosecutors last year called one of the largest state-sponsored hacking campaigns ever prosecuted by the Department of Justice. But it wasn't the Russians or the Chinese who pulled this off. It was the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, an all-powerful arm of the Iranian government, with its own army, navy, air force, and military, as well as lucrative business interests and a covert action arm that has for years been relentlessly targeting the United States. A new article by Yahoo News contributor Zach Dorfman digs deep into the IRGC operations around the world and why they continue to pose a threat to U.S. interests, a threat all the more ominous in the wake of President Trump's decision to pull out of the Iranian nuclear deal. We'll talk to Dorfman about what the IRGC is up to and what it means for U.S.-Iranian relations. And we'll talk to Anthony Scaramucci, a.k.a. The Mooch, Donald Trump's one-time communications chief who has spoken out about the president's recent racially charged tweet storms on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Okay, so last week on Skullduggery, we told our audience that in the wake of Bob Mueller's uninspired performance before House Judiciary and Intelligence, impeachment was, for all practical purposes, dead. Matt Miller was on the show saying the Russia story was probably over. The country just didn't want to hear it. And yet, we now learn from Politico that so many Democrats have continued to come out for impeachment. It's now a majority of the House Democratic Caucus. So much for our prognostication. But what we didn't anticipate, although maybe we should have, (laughs) was that the president of the United States would start tweeting and outraging people. And it really was, I think, a lot of these racially, I mean, just racist tweets that he was putting out there and now going after the city of Baltimore. And, um, you know, and we're heading, we're in a, presidential election season now and, you know, the base, you know, wants impeachment, I think. So, yeah. What they wanted, if nothing else, is a symbolic act of, like, you know, just standing up to this president and saying, you are unacceptable as a leader of this country. And, you know, there's no question that I think you're absolutely right. It's the president's tweets that have inflamed people and made it mandatory for a lot of these House Democrats, even those from swing districts, to come out for impeachment, not so much because of the details in the Mueller report, but because as a statement against Donald Trump. Okay, now let's remember, this is a 
bare majority of the Democratic caucus in the House. It's not a majority of the House itself. So we're still, I think, a ways away before Nancy Pelosi and the leadership uh, backs impeachment, but definitely inching closer. There are a couple of um, House members that I think people are going to be watching very carefully to see where they go, because so far they have backed the leadership. One is uh, Ben Ray Lujan, who is uh, from New Mexico and who is the assistant leader. And another one who I think is really important to watch is Congressman John Lewis of Georgia, the civil rights Mm -hmm. icon, a real kind of moral authority in the House. And importantly, the Black Caucus, um, which is still divided on this uh, issue because a lot of them back the speaker, they might follow Lewis um, if he comes out in favor of You know, I got to say, there is a dynamic that is not dissimilar from the one in 1998 when the Republican House moved forward with impeachment against Bill Clinton, even though it was clear it was not going to lead to his removal from office, but the Republican base was demanding it. And, um, you know, as a measure of political purity, if nothing else, Republicans almost unanimously, I believe, voted to impeach Bill Clinton, only to have him quickly acquitted by the Senate. It'll be there very... There were also a few Democrats, weren't there? I think there? there were four. And right now, you've yeah. got one Republican or former Republican, right? Justin Amash. Right. You have no Republicans. So no Republicans. So, yeah. And, you know, what would be really interesting to see is uh, if they do end up impeaching the president. And, you know, you have to wonder what the timing would be at this point. They're about to, the House is about to go out on a, a month-long recess. You know, then we're into the fall. We're closer to the presidential election year. But if they do move in that direction, how Mitch McConnell would handle it, I can see him setting up a trial that lasts about 20 minutes in the Senate and then voting right away to acquit the president, which, of course, would give Trump the opportunity to say, you see, I've been exonerated. By the way, just one last point on this, which is that we just watched the second of two nights of Democratic debates. Impeachment did not come up. The first night at all. Uh, And it came up at the very end of last... uh, In response uh, to a question. In response uh, to a question. So it wasn't something that they had brought up on their own. But it is worth pointing out that Julian Castro made the argument that impeachment would actually be good politics uh, for the Democrats, which is counter to what uh, certainly Nancy Pelosi and the leadership and a lot of mainstream Democrats have been saying. You know, unclear whether he's right about that, but that is his position. Well, we will see. Um, One other thing I want to talk about briefly before we go to our guests is this really cool FBI report that uh, Jana Winter, Yahoo News contributor, has uh, uncovered and written about for us about the threat posed by fringe conspiracy theories. For the first time, the FBI is labeling fringe conspiracy theories a domestic terrorism threat. And anybody listening to Conspiracy Land, our six-part podcast, which wraps up with its last episode uh, next Tuesday, will be very interested in the details in this FBI intelligence bulletin. Absolutely. I mean, the the memo itself, this is an FBI intelligence bulletin that circulated um, within the the Bureau, it actually mentions some of the specific conspiracy theories that you get into in conspiracy land, like like Pizzagate. And the point is, is that these conspiracy theories, as in the Pizzagate case, can actually lead to violence and attempted violence in the real world, in the physical world. So they're taking this seriously. 
And, um, you know, anybody who listens to Conspiracy Land will understand why. Right. And, you know, they make the point, they make the same point, actually, that we make in the podcast, which is that with social media and it is so easy for these wacko theories and claims from really fringe groups to circulate, get wide attraction out there on Twitter, on Facebook, on all sorts of uh, uh, social media platforms, and it inspires people to take action, which is exactly exactly what happened in Pizzagate, the claim that this, you know, the D.C. pizza parlor, Comet Pizza, was enslaving young children in its basement in order to engage in sexual trafficking of them. Absolutely nothing to back that up. A guy, a volunteer firefighter from North Carolina, drives up with an assault rifle and barges into the restaurant to try to rescue the children. So everyone will be able to listen to, on Tuesday, we're dropping the sixth episode. Sixth and final episode. So starting on Tuesday, you'll be able to binge listen yes. to every one of the Conspiracy Land episodes. It is totally addictive. I've already listened to it several times. <laughs> Multiple and I think, times. And I think I will again. <laughs> yes. Um, and um, uh, Ishikov and I are actually going to be on vacation over the next couple of weeks. Uh, where are you going, Mike? Or can you, you maybe uh, you should, maybe we, location, should, maybe we shouldn't say because yeah. there are a lot of conspiracy <laughs> theorists out there. Who People might are, be are after, after me you. at the moment. <laughs> yes. But we'll be off for a couple of weeks. But between Conspiracy Land and I think we're going to have a bonus edition of Skullduggery. There uh, ought to be uh, plenty of content out there for everybody to listen to. And we will be back rested and ready, not tan. I don't tan. I stroke uh, in, uh, uh, what, the third week of August. We will be back. And in the meantime, let's get to the mooch. We are now joined by Anthony Scaramucci, a.k.a. The Mooch. Briefly, back in 2017, President Trump's communications director, but a guy who's been getting some attention for some critical things he's been saying about the president of late, uh, which we want to discuss with him. Anthony, uh, welcome back to Skullduggery. Well, it's it's great to be on. It's really not critical. It's like constructive. But what I find outrageous about the party I'm in is that these guys are not, they don't tell the truth. They're like, run, the lights go on in the kitchen and all the cockroaches are running in different directions. Just tell the truth, that's all. You think Mitch McConnell is not uh, telling the truth? Well, I don't know. What is Mitch McConnell saying? That the well, tweets are racist and the president's not racist? Yeah. The, president, the president's not racist. I can prove to you empirically that he's not racist, but those tweets are racist. And so, you know, don't do that because wh- why do that? You're gonna win. Why win and have the thing racially charged and racially divided? In the meantime, you got to judge people by their actions, not by their words. Look at what he's done for prison reform. Look at what he's doing to end recidivism. Look at what he's doing to improve the economic situation for the African-American unemployment, Hispanic-American unemployment, et cetera. So but don't say stuff like that. because Anthony, let me let me just ask you this, because, I, you know, I know you're not going to say that you think the president is racist. But it's not racist. OK, I'm, but honestly, but but let me ask you this. Is he indifferent? Because, you know, I think it was Elie Wiesel who said the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. Is this president indifferent on these issues of race? No, he's transactional. It's different from being indifferent. He's transactional. He's like, OK, Kanye's good for my politics. So is Kim Kardashian. Prison reform is good for my politics. Uh 
these policies are good for America. It'll, and and it'll, racist it'll, tweets are good for our politics. Well, he may think that. Right. He may think that racist. I, I don't know if he thinks that or not. I haven't talked to him. I know he's probably mad at me right now, but he may think racist tweets are good for politics, but they're not. They're I, th- very I, I think, by the way, it's been reported he is mad at you. Oh, yes, he is. I don't know if you've gotten that feedback. So, but look. He's mad at me. Trust me, he'll get over it because at the end of the day, we were friends before he became president. And he could be mad at me right now because he's trying to like, He's trying to send out a scent, you know, like that he's he's like the alpha dog in the room. And so he's like sending out a scent to everybody. You can't say one syllable against me, which is really a bunch of nonsense. Okay, if we're all on the same team rowing in the same direction, you've got to be constructive. If you are in a situation as a manager, I mean, you guys have a great podcast, but behind me are about 80 people. I have to run this organization. So as a manager, it's slap up and kiss down. If they're kissing up and slapping down, then we have a nightmare on our hands. So I have people inside here that will open the door and tell me what they think I'm doing right and wrong. And frankly, a lot of the times they're right when I'm doing something wrong, and that helps improve my business. And so if the president is now surrounded by people that are not going to tell him the truth and they're going to confirm his biases, which may not be correct, that's a recipe for disaster. That's how you run Lehman into the ground, or that's how you go in a direction politically that is a disaster. Well, let me ask you, have you heard from people who are close to the president who agree with what you are saying and are concerned about the president's tendency to, you know, do these tweets that are at a minimum racially divisive? I have heard from people inside the White House. I've heard from people that are unbelievably close to the president, like no daylight between them and the president. I've heard from people up on the Hill. I've heard from people in the Senate. I've heard from people in the Congress. I've heard from people in the cabinet. Okay, but they're all Frady cats, you know, because they live in a place called Washington, D.C., where the entire area is like allergic to the truth. I mean, you know, so well, wait a second. Are they uh, are they afraid yeah. to speak up publicly or are they afraid to speak up to the president and Both. advise him to cut it out? Both. So you, cabinet members, members of the Trump cabinet who agree that what he's doing is racially divisive, is going to lose him political support, is not good for the country, but they are too timid to say that to the boss. Let's let's go over it. In the White House, in the cabinet, in the House, and in the Senate. So it's not just the cabinet. But it includes cabinet members. Of course. But by the way, you guys are good journalists. You want to tell us who they are? Of course not. That's not up for me to, to do that. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna break their. What do you think? I'm like some of these uh, Gonzo journalists. You could Someone's, smoke them out. You know, I, like, put the heat on them publicly because they're the enablers, right? They're the people who are allowing the president to continue doing what he's doing. It's off the record. I keep it off the record. Okay, I'm not like some of these jerk off journalists. Okay, okay. so just tell us. We'll keep it off the record. Just tell us it's it's off the record. <laughs> You know what I'm saying is true. Right. You guys are journalists and you've done your homework and you know that there's a very large group of people saying, hey, man, the guy's created an economic miracle. He's got some very, very good policies that should lead to a resounding reelection. Let's not go down that path. There's no reason to. There's, there's absolutely no reason to. But we should move on because that's like yesterday's news. Today's news is the debate. OK, wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Before we get to that, and we will get to the debate, this is what I want to ask you. You're at a cocktail party 
and you bump into Mick Mulvaney, Pence, and Mitch McConnell. What do you tell them about this situation with Trump and his tweets? What's your message to them? Honestly, I wouldn't even bring it up. First of all, the chance of me bumping into those guys is low because I don't go to Washington and I don't really go to that many cocktail parties, although you and I were at a cocktail party. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's the Lally, oh, let's go into Lally that. Weymouth <laughs> cocktail It's more than a cocktail party. More it is a, a wonderful party. party. Yeah. For me, uh, I get along with Senator McConnell very well. You'll find me on his donor list. Mick Mulvaney and I have met a few times. Unfortunately, I don't know him super well. But he's an impressive guy. Anytime I've been in a private setting where he's making a presentation, uh, he knows his facts and figures as well as anybody. He's steeped in like policy and he's very well respected, very good guy. And uh, the vice president and I have known each other since he was on the RGA. So look, they're in a tough spot. If you're inside the administration, you don't want to go against the president. I understand that. But you should say, hey, why don't we knock that off? Because we got so many good things to focus on. When he talks about the economy, and he's given two great speeches in the last six months, State of the Union speech, which a lot of people saw, and the Fourth of July speech, which frankly a lot of people did not see, but go look at those two speeches, read the transcript. That's the guy that I know, that's the guy that I love, and that's the guy, if he stays on message like that, he wins the way Reagan won in 84. So for me, that's what I want. And I'm, I'm a Trump supporter. And so what I don't like is this litmus test where you got to measure everything. And if you're not 100% in the tank, like these jokers in uh, Palm Beach, uh, Florida, they invite me to Lobster Fest. I say, no problem. I mean, I'm going for free, my time, my energy, my flight, et cetera. And then they disinvite me as a political prop because I said that I don't like the president sending out racist tweets. So they, they disinvite me. So I don't know. I just think it's ridiculous. Why do we have to have a litmus test? I support the president. I want him to win re-election, uh, but there's not everything I like about what he's doing. I think it's stupid to to have a litmus test. But Lenny, you support his re-election, but you warned when you first started speaking out about the president's tweets a few weeks ago, and this was after his, you know, go back to where you came from tweet about the squad, which really only arguably pertained to one member, Congresswoman Omar, who was a U.S. citizen. And you said, I just want to quote your words here. I don't think the president's a racist, but here's the thing. If you continue to say and act in that manner, then all you have to look at him and say, okay, well, maybe you weren't a racist, but now you're turning into one. And then you also said something else, that this was a chunk of the president's support uh, was going to melt away because of these inflammatory, racially charged tweets by the president. And that was before the series of the tweet storm about Congressman Cummings in Baltimore, which only aggravated the whole situation and showed that he wasn't listening to your words. He's obviously not listening to my words. That doesn't matter. I'm going to say them anyway, but not melt away. I said it was a glacier and a piece of the glacier or iceberg is going to break off because it's not going to melt away. It's not like those people okay. are going to break off. I stand off. corrected. No, but just let me explain it because it's important. They're not going to melt away and go away. They're going to break off and they're going to be ardent in their support against racism. Okay, ardent. So what, what's happening right now, there's a very large group of people in that party who are looking at the president's policies and looking at what he's doing around the world saying, okay, 
that's fantastic. I totally signed up for that. But they're then looking at the rhetoric and they're saying, okay, that is super polarizing and super divisive. The first name of the country is United. Last time I checked, right? That's the first name of the country. We can't go in that direction. And so what will happen is, you know, and there's guys in the Republican Party, maybe they're no longer in the party, like Max Boot and Bill Kristol and uh, George Will, where they've already gotten there. They've said, okay, the president's rhetoric and the divisiveness outweigh the policies. Okay, so I haven't gotten there, but I'm telling you that there's a very large group of people that would turn. And so I don't want to see that happen. I don't, I, I think this is a monumental election and an election of great consequence. And I think the president should win the election. And if he does win the election and sticks with the policies, it's going to be great for the country as it, as evidenced by the econ- economy. But what makes you, know, you think, th- what makes you think that he's going to stick with the policies and change his behavior? Is there anything, you know him well, is there anything that you've seen no, no, uh, in, that suggests that he will change? There's nothing that I've seen that will suggest he will change other than the fact I have never met anybody in my life that likes winning or is more competitive than President Trump. Okay, but so if you don't think he's going to change and you think that the tweets and, and the rhetoric is abhorrent, he makes why, the cap- why, why are you, are you you're real, you're going to support him? Well, you got to let me finish. Okay, you know, go ahead. If he thinks... And he's got to come to that conclusion, not one of his aides, not one of his family members, not one of his advisors or friends. If he thinks, wait a minute, that sort of stuff strategically and tactically is going to limit my chance of winning, he will stop it. But that's the only thing. And might he and if he does it, might he lose your support? Oh, definitely. Not just my support. I made that statement two weeks ago. If you're going in a direction that's categorically full blown racism, he will not only lose my support, there is a gigantic group of people that will break off and float away. But they're not going to melt. They're going to be out there saying, hey, what are you doing? You can't do this. And so what I'm shocked by right now, because you guys cover the swamp, what I'm shocked by is that there's not more people speaking out about it. We've got a 330 million person country, you know, okay, figure out the number of adults and figure out the number of of registered Republicans that have an opportunity for advocacy. Why are they not speaking out of it? Are they that big of a fraidy cat group of people? I mean, what are they doing? They know that it's not the right thing. Okay. And down deep, the president likes to double down on stuff and he never likes to apologize. But down deep, he's got to know too, because he's really not a racist. The point, last point, let me make one last point. If we're debating whether the leader of the free world, it's 2019, if we're debating whether the leader of the free world is a racist or not, and the racists think he may be racist, he should probably change his uh, verbiage and should probably change that vernacular. That's my point. But we're beating a dead horse. I've already said all this stuff, right? <laughs> well, you, you say it well. Um, and so we want to hear it as many times because obviously there's uh, you got an audience of one who doesn't want to hear it. And how do you, guys, you break through? You guys are good journalists. You know what I'm saying is true. Very large group of people feel exactly the way I do. So if you think this is the right path, I'm telling you, it is. even if you win, it's not the right path. And by the way, he's going to win without going in that direction. So let's win and focus on the first name of the country, United. And, and by the way, you know, the problem the president has right now is he's embattled. And when people are embattled, 
they have a tendency to strike back. Okay, and that that's what he's doing. You know, you want to talk about the Elijah Cummings thing? I actually think that's different than the first flurry of tweets. It's not me parsing it. Why? It's just, oh, why? Because the situation in Baltimore, as admitted by leaders in Baltimore and people that live in Baltimore is a disaster, okay? And it's not a racist thing to objectively look at something, okay? Bill de Blasio is as white as the inside of a Wonder Bread loaf, okay? He's not even Italian, you know, he's like, just named himself Italian. Is that true? Is that, I didn't know this. Wait, his, wait a second. He's his not mom's Italian? Ita- his mom's Italian. She she lived on my street. His mom's right. Italian. His, his name is Wilhelm, whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I'm just making the point. I'm just making the point that he sucks as a mayor. He's arguably the worst mayor in the history of New York. He has created an unmitigated disaster here. The good news is there's only can have eight years of the guy. And so that's it's not racist to objectively look at where the city was under Mayor Bloomberg's leadership and where it is today and objectively say, okay, the guy's created a disaster. Okay. And the cops hate him. Okay. And he needs the cops if you really want to run the city properly. So so you, you know, if you're looking at Baltimore. And you're saying, okay, objectively, there's a very large group of people here. I mean, I understand Baltimore pride. I understand that people are sore at the president for for doing it, and he probably says it in a way that gets them upset. But you know, we would we should really focus on these inner cities, which have been c- controlled by the left for 40 or 50 years. They're not working. These inner cities. The educational system is flawed. The gun violence is through the roof. The uh, rat infestation, all of that sort of stuff, is prevalent. It's not racist to say that objectively and look at it for what it is. I don't know who's running San Francisco right now. I don't know if it's a white person or a black person, but defecating on the street and leaving heroin needles where people used to vacation and there was heavy tourism, I think that's a disaster. If you go up to Portland, Oregon, it's like the zombie apocalypse. Okay, people are like pushing shopping carts and smoking pot on the street. It looks like a, it looks like an unmitigated disaster. So. I don't know. Is that racist? I don't even know who's running Portland, Oregon. So you uh, no doubt watched the Democratic debates and give us your take on who you think right now is likely to be Trump's opponent. Well, I mean, right now you'd have if you're betting, you know, and again, obviously the thing is totally fluid. And it's first of all, as a person that runs a lot of capital, I wouldn't bet on anybody right now because the pieces are moving so quickly. But, you know, Joe Biden held his own last night. He's ahead in the polls. He's got the money. He's got the name brand recognition in the United States. And so he would likely win. But I think he would be a McGovern-like candidate because, you know, the president's got all the cards in his hands. But I like Vice President Biden, but I don't I don't see him beating President Trump. But if you had to put a gun to my head right now, given all the facts that are out there, he'll be the nominee. I thought the most impressive person by far of the 20 people, two nights of debating was Tulsi Gabbard, by far the most impressive, uh, very honest, very direct. There's a lilt of populism in her personality, but there's also a lilt of pragmatism where she actually gets it. And she's been a veteran and she's served in these wars. And these wars are a bunch of nonsense, you know. So, and by the way, thank God President Trump is the president because these neocons and people like, you know, that created the original wars. I don't want to pick on Secretary Clinton because she's out of it now, but enough of the wars already. Okay, $7 trillion spent. You killed at least a million people in the Middle East, as far as we can tell. You wounded 70,000 servicemen and women, and you killed 7,000 of our troops. And now you've got 22 dying a day of post-traumatic stress. 
So these wars have been an unmitigated disaster. You could have taken the $7 trillion and rebuilt most of the bridges, roads, tunnels, and schools in the United States. And yet, in, in, in spite of his the fact that he has spoken out against uh, more wars in the United States, a lot of people think because of his transactional nature and in responding to the Iranians, he's going to get us into another one. Nah, not going to happen. And look, look at he didn't even they put the war plans in front of him, and he he nixed them. So he's just he's got very good judgment on stuff like that. That's something that your listeners should really know in the room where it happens. He's got very, very good judgment on stuff like that. He is very practical. He's very deliberative. Uh, and he really hates these wars. And so, and they've, they've asked him to do certain things. You probably saw that last week with the Moab. They wanted him to drop another one. He said NFW. He's a very deliberative guy on stuff like that. He's very, very thoughtful. And it's different from the tweeting and different from some of the rhetoric at the campaign rallies. I got to say, Anthony, deliberative and thoughtful are not words that come to mind when one thinks of President Trump. Well, he is. So that's the thing. You know, you should do your homework and ask people when they're in the White House Situation Room and they're talking about bombing people what the president's reaction is to those things. So Um, he, he happens to be that way. So, you know, look, I call him out on when I think he's doing stuff that's nuts. But I'm also going to tell the truth about what I have seen in terms of how he thinks about things with a great deal of common sense, particularly when it comes to a life or death situation. So, Anthony, the I think the kind of CW among political observers uh, right now is that Biden still leading in the polls, but he's, you know, wobbling a bit after those last two debates. But the other two strong candidates are Elizabeth Warren and uh, Kamala Harris. What do you think of that? those two? Well, I don't know. You know, I don't know them as well as I know Vice President Biden. I've met uh, Senator Harris once. She's a very likable person. She's very smart. Uh, she's got a tough backbone. I think the attack on her last night may stick because right now we're in a very different zip code than we were in 1994 when they passed all that crime legislation. And so you know, the, the thing will be is, could that stick on Joe Biden? The answer is it could, but Joe Biden's got the name recognition and the brand where he could probably withstand it. Could Senator Warren, I'm sorry, Senator Harris withstand that? I'm not sure. On the flip side, where Senator Warren is very impressive is that she's very thoughtful. I, I disagree with like 99.9% of everything she says, but she's very thoughtful and she is deliberative on her policy proposals. So What's interesting, if you add her numbers and Bernie Sanders' numbers, she is the, that combination is the front runner. So one of those people drops out. I think those two groups sort of merge with each other. And so if you said to me, hey, Bernie's out or Elizabeth Warren's out, that's Joe Biden's adversary, more so than Senator Harris, in my opinion. Well, uh, Anthony, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. We don't get a lot of defenders of the president on this podcast, but uh, we're always uh, happy to hear from them, even if they... Mm-hmm. I thought this was a Trump 2020 re-election. Huh? <laughs> well, no, I don't think uh, anybody would think that. But anyway, it's great to have you back, and um, uh, we hope we will uh, we'll do it again. Anytime, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank, thank you. you.
Okay, joining us on the podcast now is Zach Dorfman, a Yahoo News contributor and uh, one of the best Intel reporters around these days. And Zach has just recently uh, done a story for us that's really explosive and fascinating and really little known about the uh, Iranian intelligence and sort of the spy wars between the United States and Iran over the last uh, really couple of decades. Uh, It focuses on the IRGC. That's the Iranian Revolutionary Revolutionary Guard Corps, correct? Correct. Okay. Well, Zach, welcome to Skullduggery. And let's talk about this really amazing story. So tell us a little bit about the IRGC. It is an unusual beast. And by the way, the Trump administration just recently designated it as a terrorist uh, organization, which was quite controversial. So that's some of the backdrop for this story. But tell us what the IRGC is, and then we'll get into the story. So the Revolutionary Guard, or IRGC, is a kind of unique actor in the international security sphere because it's, on the one hand, a kind of conventional military force. It has an army, a a navy, an air force, a militia, but it's also an intelligence agency. It's also a covert action force. It's also a supporter and facilitator and trainer of terrorist groups across the Middle East, most notably Lebanese Hezbollah, which is probably the most sophisticated terrorist organization in the world. And it has tentacles throughout the Iranian economy and is arguably the most powerful actor within the Iranian state itself, perhaps with the exception of the the clergy. But the other thing that makes the IRGC unique is that it serves as the kind of ideological enforcer for the regime. And it was founded in the aftermath of the 1979 Islamic Revolution specifically to protect the revolution. And in doing so, over time, what it's done is it has absorbed and started to dominate Iran's traditional military. There's another parallel Iranian military, but the IRGC dominates it. And it has become the most important channel between the supreme leader and the uh, Iranian security apparatus. And Zach, I think the thing that uh, would surprise most people who read this story is the extent to which the IRGC and Iranian intelligence is operating on U.S. soil. Now, I think there's an expectation that we are spying in Iran, and I think a lot of people remember the Stuxnet operation uh, to sabotage the Iranian nuclear program. But you have a ton of reporting on espionage operations in the United States uh, by the Iranians and specifically the IRGC. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and this is definitely, I think, pulling back the curtain a little bit on something that, as you said, doesn't get a lot of press. And what I found in the course of my reporting is that Iran, the U.S. and Iran have not had diplomatic relations since 1979. And because of that, the Iranians have had to engage in more, I wouldn't want to say dangerous, but more unconventional ways of spying because they don't have embassies and consulates from which to spy from in the U.S. So no, so no official cover, as, as uh, the no spies call it. No official cover, with the exception of their mission to the UN and a very tiny number of diplomats who are housed within the Pakistani embassy in Washington, D.C. But in general, what they've been forced to do over time is rely on individuals coming in on student visas, for example, and also travel visas. 
And what former U.S. intelligence community officials were focused on the counterintelligence or U.S. side dimension of it said to me was, you know, these were the things that they were focused on, especially in the run-up to the Iran deal. And that involved professors and students who were suspected of being Revolutionary Guard operatives coming to the U.S. and working on the development of military technology or the, the theft of intellectual property. But it also involves people coming in on travel visas, for example, and tracking Iranian dissidents or uh, Revolutionary Guard defectors in the U.S. itself. So, Zach, uh, there's a really important figure who you talk about in this piece, General Qasem Soleimani, who is the head of the Quds Force and is really an influential, perhaps the most influential person in Iran who reports directly to the Supreme Leader, Ali Khamenei. Tell us about uh, General Soleimani and what his power base is and, you know, what his role today is in shaping Iranian policy towards the United States. Yeah, Soleimani is, as you mentioned, an incredibly influential and important figure um, in this discussion. He leads the Quds Force, as you said, and the Quds Force is the corporate action wing of the Revolutionary Guard, or IRGC, and it has been described to me as a combination between the CIA and special forces. But it's actually more than that, too, because the Quds Force is the wing of the IRGC that supports all of these proxies abroad, including uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, including the Houthis in Yemen, including other proxies in places like Iraq, Shia militias, and in Syria. And what Soleimani has done is really transform Iranian foreign policy in a way because he has instituted a kind of low-cost, high-impact strategy where by training and facilitating uh, these proxy groups, he's created counterforces across the region that have wreaked havoc on the countries within which they're operating and provide and, and caused significant strategic challenges to not only the United States, but also some of the more conservative Sunni monarchies like the Saudis and the UAE, for instance. And so the dynamic you're seeing in the Middle East is in one sense a battle between those conservative monarchies or states and also the Soleimani-backed forces throughout the wider region. So let's talk about some of the specific spy operations in the United States. Um, and among them, uh, you talked about theft of military know-how, intellectual property. But uh, weren't they also uh, kind of picking our pockets on the nuclear side as well as they developed their nuclear program? Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that they were looking for non-obvious technology that related to their nuclear program, things like vibration sensors, which are used in like testing of new roads, but also are important in testing of nuclear devices. And so while the U.S. and the Iranians were negotiating over what would become the Iran deal or the JCPOA, the IRGC was also stepping up these operations on U.S. soil. And they were doing so through this kind of intellectual property theft and through people on U.S. soil, as um, we previously talked about. But they were also trying to get goods shipped through third countries. In other words, you couldn't ship certain technology into Iran. So what they would do is they would try to find states that you could ship that technology to. And then from there, they would ship it onward into Iran. So it was uh, it was uh, illegal transshipment operations. And the Revolutionary Guard was very active in the 
pre-Iran deal days in um, facilitating those kinds of operations. Well, one of the ironies is, I think you were just alluding to this, is that their operations kind of really ramped up just as that diplomacy was ramping up. And they were getting better and better during that time. And the Americans didn't quite understand why that was, how they were doing it. Yeah, they didn't understand why it was. And there started to be some theories that developed. And one theory that apparently bore out um, in intelligence reporting from some of the former officials that I spoke with was that there was more coherent cooperation with other U.S. adversaries like China and Russia. And, and that uh, it, that was both in the sphere of online influence schemes and public perception, trying to win hearts and minds, so to speak, um, but also in something which is probably the most dangerous thing, which is in counterintelligence. And, and what I was told was that the Iranians, after those centrifuges started spinning out of control, thanks to a, a joint U.S. and Israeli operation, they realized that they needed to really harden their own defenses against this kind of penetration. And so they turned to their, I think, more formidable allies, the Russians and the Chinese. And what you started to see during this time was enhanced counterintelligence cooperation. And one manifestation of that was the uh, communications compromise around 2010 and 2011 that Yahoo News' own Jen McLaughlin and I reported last year. So the one big takeaway from reading your piece is the breadth and extent of Iranian operations targeting the United States, which raises the questions about the nuclear deal that President Obama signed, acknowledging that this was not going to um, address all the issues in U.S.-Iranian relations, including the Quds Force and the IRGC, but President Trump has withdrawn from. And I got to say, you know, when one reads your piece spelling out just <laughs> how extensive and comprehensive the Iranian targeting of the United States is, it does raise questions about the original Obama decision to trust the Iranians on the nuclear deal. Address that, because that is the issue on the table right now. Well, I think the Obama administration folks would say that they had instituted a um, pretty tough verification scheme as part of the Iran deal. And I think the arguments that I've heard from them, and I find this you know, at least partially convincing, is that the Iran deal was not supposed to comprehensively deal with all of the U.S.-Iran bilateral issues, um, because there are many of them. And Iran is an adversary state, and they do all kinds of bad things all over the world. It was to forestall them getting the bomb. And right. No, I, I get that. That is the argument. It's been the argument all along. And, you know, it persuaded a lot of people, probably me as well. But your article is a big but, saying, yeah, but look at what these guys are doing. Look how committed they are to attacking us in every way they can. And if they are that committed to doing that, how do you trust them on curbing their nuclear program? 
Well, the IAEA inspectors, uh, every time there was a, a scheduled verification, said that they were abiding by the terms of the deal. There have been there's been some talk uh, on the margins that they in fact were not. Um, I believe that when CIA Director Haspel uh, testified in Congress recently, she also said that the there was no evidence that the Iranians had not been abiding by the terms of the deal. I think this is an incredibly thorny problem, to be honest, because you have you know the Revolutionary Guard and the Iranians state has foreign policy priorities that are antithetical to those of the United States. And whether or not they are nuclear armed, they are going to continue pursuing those kinds of antithetical foreign policy goals. And as you mentioned, they've been doing so more aggressively over time. So I don't really know what the answer is. I mean, I, I would rather have a non-nuclear armed Iran that is getting more aggressive abroad than a nuclear armed Iran that is also getting more aggressive abroad. But beyond that, it seems like a particularly thorny issue that, frankly, I don't think the George W. Bush administration, the Obama administration, or the Trump administration have managed to really figure out. Zach, your story raises a kind of a related, you know, and, and, and I think important theme, which is that, you know, in statecraft and foreign affairs, you need to sort of know your enemy. You need to understand how they think, what motivates them. And you talk a fair amount about how the Iranian regime views the United States and the United States actions and how its interpretations of what we do may be wrongheaded, but it's real and we need to take those things into consideration. So, for example, the way they viewed our invasion of Iraq and what that meant in terms of how the United States might want to dominate uh, the region or the withdrawal from the nuclear agreement, how they saw that. And then finally, designating the uh, Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization. Those actions, which you know may be perceived by a lot of people in this country as in our interests, are perceived very differently by the regime, and they have an effect. They, there is a cause and effect there. Talk about that and how there may be miscalculations uh, because of that dynamic. I think that one of the unique dimensions of the U.S.-Iran relationship is that there is, to put it lightly, a deficit of trust and mutual understanding. Going back, the Iranians would say, to 1953 or 1954, when we supported the overthrow of a democratically elected prime minister there. And then, of course, you have 1979, where we supported the Shah, and then you, know, you had people held in an embassy for a year. I mean, there's a long history of mistrust that you have. The Iran-Iraq war, where we supported Saddam in his invasion of Iran. There has not been a particularly good dialogue or discourse between our two countries over very many, many decades. And that is not to say that I'm adopting the Iranian view of these things. It's simply that we're not thinking in terms of how they're reacting to what we're doing. And as somebody said to me, just because the Treasury Secretary can stand up on a podium and start designating people, and we think that is a relatively low-cost way to inflict pain on the Iranian state, they don't see it as a low-cost way. They don't see it as a low-cost measure. They think about it as economic warfare. And they're using all the tools in their arsenal, including their, their ability to disrupt the traffic of global oil flows through the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz, to try to get us back to the negotiating table or lessen the pressure on them. So we withdrew, the Trump administration withdrew from the Iran deal and then reinstituted a whole host of sanctions that have been pretty punishing on the Iranian economy. And the Trump administration feels that this is the best way to get a better deal 
But the Iranians, especially the supreme leader, who was very suspicious of the deal initially, now believes that the Americans can't be trusted at all. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of told you so attitude, which then empowers hardline, right? So, so bottom line, are we on a road to war with Iran? I certainly hope not. And I think that we should all hope not. However, just a few weeks ago, we had a situation where the president appeared to give the go-ahead for strikes on Iran and decided against it at the last minute. And the Iranians have been relatively strategic in their activities so far in that they have been putting these limpet mines on ships above the waterline. They haven't killed anybody yet. But all it takes is one one bad move, one misunderstanding, and then you start seeing uh, a regional conflict break out, and then you could see something swirling uh, in a very, very bad way. So we're not there yet, and things seem to have cooled off in the last week or so. But every time we do something, every time we make a move, the United States makes well, a move. Well, how, how about the, the sanctioning of uh, Zarif, the foreign minister, the other day, a guy who's generally viewed as a moderate in the Iranian context, and there we were targeting him. That surely isn't going to help de-escalate tensions. No, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, and so you have a couple things going on. First of all, when the Zarif designation was announced, the first thing I thought was, well, this is going to just empower the hardliners more, right? You're going to have somebody like Qasem Soleimani saying, see, you, you can't talk to them, right? They won't even talk to the foreign minister anymore. So then you have a, an analysis of the current situation on their side, which involves them thinking through, well, if they don't even want to talk to us, how are we going to try to get the U.S., and if not the U.S., the Europeans to do what we need in terms of sanctions relief? So, Zach, we're, in a second, we're going to move on to another big story bubbling up in Washington on, on your beat, which is uh, Trump's choice controversial choice to be the director of national intelligence. But before we get to that, just one last scoop in your story, uh, which I thought was fascinating and which goes to this sort of wilderness of mirrors in the spy versus spy operations between Iran and the, and the United States. And that is the case of Robert Levinson, the former FBI agent and uh, CIA contractor who disappeared in Iran and, and who many believe was being held by this organization that you've written about, the IRGC. Tell us about that story and what happened when the American authorities met someone in, in Los Angeles, I believe. Yeah, this is, as you said, a great kind of wilderness of mirrors story. So Robert Levinson was a longtime FBI agent who became a CIA contractor who secretly went on a mission to Iran while working as a CIA contractor and disappeared there in 2007. And this has been a very important issue for the U.S. intelligence community and especially the bureau where you know, he worked for many, many years. Uh, and what I was told was that there was an outreach through uh, an Iranian source who was at least based part-time in Los Angeles, who said that he could offer a back channel to the regime about information regarding Levinson in exchange for the U.S. providing Iran certain uh, airplane parts. Because during the Obama-era sanctions regime, it was very difficult for Iran to get spare aircraft parts for both of its civilian fleet and its military, of course. And apparently a list of specific parts was drawn up. I got to stop you for one second, because that sounds like a story that Isakov might have covered. You might be old enough. I, I kind of got in on the tail end. The Iran-Contra Iran Iran affair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
it was certainly redolent of that. And I actually had a, a former senior official who was knowledgeable about it saying, this wasn't going to be an Iran-Contra thing. And, <laughs> and of course, I thought, this sounds a lot like Iran. I was, yeah, let me think. You know, uh, uh, hostages, uh, yeah. arms, uh, yeah. Iranians, uh, the, no cake with a key in it, but otherwise. Yes, and no Contras. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was surprising that it, went, it was considered uh, as seriously as it was. And I think it's evidence of how badly the U.S. intelligence community folks, in particular the FBI, want information about whether Levinson is alive, if he's being held by the IRGC, if he's deceased, whether they could get his remains back. It's a serious sticking point. And we still don't know what happened to Levinson. And, of course, there hasn't been any proof of life for years in his case. There was one video five or six years ago, but nothing since then. I should add, just before we get to the Radcliffe nomination, you know, there's so many nuggets in your piece also you remind us that a lot of senior al-Qaeda figures migrated to Iran after 9-11 and the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. They were being harbored there. There were these CIA operations trying to track them down in Iran with, you know, sometimes a little uh, help from the Iranian government and more often not. Yeah, I mean, and this there's this two important points. I mean, one, you have a good example of the internal regime dynamics, where at the time you had a reformist leader in Katami who was trying to work a little bit with the U.S., especially there was this window of post-9-11 goodwill that included some people within the Iranian government. And then you had the IRGC and the Quds Force, which had the attitude of, if this hurts the Americans, it's good for us. And it was the Quds Force people who General were- Soleimani. Yes, the Soleimani people who were allowing the al-Qaeda figures, including some very significant al-Qaeda leadership, to transit from Afghanistan into Iran, set up bases of operations, and then also uh, send people in and out of, that, of Afghanistan and later Iraq. So, you know, there's a, a really fascinating and pretty sordid chapter on the relationship between the IRGC and Quds Force and al-Qaeda folks after 9-11. By the way, Zach, you, you also have some great reporting about, I think, uh, civilians from the Defense Department during the Bush administration, I guess kind of in the, the Cheney Rumsfeld wing, who secretly went into Iran to kind of scope things out. And uh, after the Iraq uh, invasion, they were pretty gung-ho about regime change in Iran. Yeah, I mean, and this was something that, you know, even so many years later, I found pretty shocking when I was discussing it with a former senior intelligence official. And that was, you know, the Iranians, I think, falsely believed that the United States went into Afghanistan and later Iraq to surround Iran. I mean, I think that's pretty demonstrably false. But it is true, as you mentioned, that you had civilians in DOD at the time who wanted to do multiple regime changes. Like after Saddam, they wanted to go into Iran and they sent DOD special operators who posed as civilians with false passports into the country on uh, civilian airlines. They went through passport control and then had those people go out and gather intelligence on sites of uh, military interests. This was a dream of Doug Fife and his (laughs) uh, band of neocons (laughs) in the Pentagon uh, during the Bush administration. Very quickly, uh, Zach, uh, the person who will be in charge of navigating these thorny issues, as you put it, will be the next director of uh, national intelligence. Would be. 
if confirmed. Would be. Well, whoever it is will yes, be dealing right, with right, it. Yeah. The guy who Trump has nominated, Congressman John Radcliffe, former U.S. attorney from Texas, seems to be in some trouble. Tell us what you know about the Radcliffe nomination and where how it's likely to play out. Well, it seems that the response from former intelligence community folks, both publicly and otherwise, has been pretty uniformly negative about Radcliffe. And that's because the director of national intelligence is supposed to be an objective arbiter um, and an analyst of all of the intelligence communities reporting from all the different agencies. I mean, and that means, as many people have said, the ability to speak truth to power. And... It appears that Ratcliffe has been chosen specifically because of his performance in the recent cross-examination of Bob Mueller, and not because of any objective qualities that he has regarding experience in interpreting and understanding the work that the intelligence community does, and especially the ability to convey those critical things to the president of the United States, even when he uh, might not want to hear what his director of national intelligence has to say. And because he is a uh, he has been a regular guest on Fox News and a critic of the deep state, um, which, you know, I think he thinks that uh, the Russia investigation um, is a deep state conspiracy. And he would, if confirmed, be over the deep state. I mean, that would be his job. <laughs> yeah, I, it's. Uh, <laughs> It's a it's a quite worrisome development, I think, to be frank, because we have never the United States has never had somebody as clearly partisan who would take up that position. You know, Dan Coats was obviously a longtime Republican congressman and senator, but most people think that he did a reasonably good job at DNI and was uh, willing to tell President Trump things that he might not want to hear, things that might not comport with his worldview, say, on Russia. Um, it's not clear that Radcliffe is going to do that. And I think that that's something that should worry us all, I mean, especially because we we're just talking about uh, the Iraq war, right, and what bad intelligence can do and what people who have pre-existing ideas about what intelligence, the intelligence says can do to American foreign policy. It can be very, very dangerous, and it can have reverberations that last for years, if not decades. Well, well, I have to say, when you talked about how the DNI and our intelligence community leaders should be the objective arbiters of truth, some of us with long memories recall uh, Colin Powell's speech to the United Nations. We're sitting behind him was George Tenet, the director of the CIA, and John Negroponte, the first director of national intelligence, while Colin Powell said all those false things about Iraqi WMD and uh, Iraq's ties to al-Qaeda. Yeah, I don't want to have uh, rose-colored glasses. So, yeah, let's not get too laudatory about the standard of objective arbiters of the truth being the uh, leaders of our intelligence community. Well, but all the more all the more reason to be skeptical of, uh, of this <laughs> yes. uh, choice. <laughs> good, so. good point. All um, right. Zach Dorfman, um, thank you so much for joining us on Skullduggery. Amazing scoop, great story, and we are looking forward to the next one. Thank you both very much. All right. Take care, Zach. Thank you. 
Thanks to intelligence reporter and Yahoo News contributor Zach Dorfman and former White House communications director Anthony Scaramucci for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.